0: So, like I was saying, um, the sermon—the uh, sermon that I have this morning—is uh, uh, is a it's a bit of a doozy. It's uh, long, but take comfort in the fact that it's not as long as it could have been because I've I, I cut a bunch of I cut a bunch of stuff out, and next week you get a break from me because uh, Tom McGarvey is preaching, and then after that we're going to get back into Genesis. You know, August 27th, 2017, was my first sermon here. Exactly six years ago to the date, I I preached uh, that sermon as a pastoral candidate, and since then, I've preached over 250 sermons here as the pastor. And yet, this is one of the most difficult and unusual sermons that I've that I've ever preached. Uh, I, in that regard. Um, I can identify a little bit with Jude, uh, who wrote the 65th uh, book of the Bible, and he told the people that he was writing to, you know, I really, I really wanted to write to you about uh, our, our common salvation, but instead I found it necessary to write to you to contend for the faith because because certain men, because destructive influencers had infiltrated the body of Christ. And so instead of just positively setting forth the glory of salvation, Jude had to urge uh, the the people to be vigilant in the face of false teachers and false teaching. And, And so although my message this morning isn't exactly the same as Jude's, message it, it, it does bear that similarity in that I'm 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 preaching this as a matter of necessity not as a matter of preference it is very important for you as a congregation to be well formed and well informed and so I I so please receive the message in that in that spirit. Uh, let's let, let me let me let me pray. Father, uh, we thank you for giving us a sure and reliable word that's been written down and preserved for our good and for our sanctification and for our walk in this world. And Father, I pray that you would strengthen us and shine the light of your truth into our hearts and lead us in your ways. In Jesus' name, amen. The sermon is titled, they must be silenced what the bible teaches about how to relate to false teachers so we're just going to jump right in first we need to understand biblically how serious the problem of false teaching is after telling us about the about the faithful prophets who spoke forth the word of the lord the apostle peter sounded this warning um, in second in Peter chapter 2, he said, "But false prophets also arose among the people back then, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them." bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Here we see the fact of false teachers, there will be false teachers, the location of false teachers, among you, that is, inside the Christian community, the motive of false teachers, greed or self-enrichment, the tactic of false teachers, which is to secretly bring in and exploit, the message of false teachers, which is to deny the Lord and they declare false words, and heresies, which are their own discordant opinions that lead people away from the truth of Scripture, the impact of false teachers, many will follow, their sensuality, and the way of the truth will be blasphemed, that is, they will give the church a bad name, and the destiny of false teachers, swift destruction. Those who broker in destructive heresies bring themselves and others to ruin. The apostle Paul also gave warning about false teachers. He told the elders of the church in Ephesus, In Acts chapter 20 verses 29 to 31, I know that after my departure fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them, therefore be alert." In another place, Paul expressed concern for the Galatian churches in chapter 1 of Galatians, verses 6 to 8. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And in his second letter to to Timothy, Paul told his protege to rightly handle the word of truth and avoid nonsense, 2 Timothy 2, verses 16 to 18, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some." Just these few passages from Paul and Peter tells us so much. Notice the destructive influence of false teachers. They upset or destabilize the faith of believers. Their talk leads people into increasing ungodliness. They trouble the church, distort the gospel, and tempt Christians to abandon the true gospel. They don't spare the flock. They draw people away from the safety of the flock, grazing together in green pastures, and draw them into their own twisted ideas. Instead of leading you into spiritual maturity, they entice your flesh to indulge in sensuality, and instead of building you up in the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, they tear you down with false words. It cannot be emphasized enough that sound doctrine is worth dying for. Sound doctrine is in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, 1 Timothy 1.11. Faithful teaching lines up with God's character, God's heart, God's saving work. And sound doctrine also accords with godliness, 1 Timothy 6.3. Just as healthy food accords with and promotes the eater's physical health, so healthy doctrine accords with and promotes the believer's spiritual health. Sadly... False teachers act wickedly by obscuring the truth and seducing people with lies. Don't be like the wicked chaplain who sought to make it easy for Christopher Yuan to remain in his bondage to sin. Christopher Yuan writes this in this month's edition of Table Talk magazine. He says, Before my conversion to faith in Christ... I confided with a chaplain about my sexuality. I was astonished when the minister handed me a book explaining that the Bible does not condemn homosexuality. Everything inside me wanted to accept those assertions to justify my life as a gay man. I began reading that book in one hand and the Bible in the other. In the following months, the Holy Spirit removed the blinders from my eyes and convicted me that the chaplain and the book clearly distorted God and his word. Like this chaplain, false teachers distort God's word and lead people to ruin. Like the scribes and Pharisees, false teachers shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Matthew 23, 13. By contrast, faithful teachers present God's word clearly and without apology, which leads people to sanctification. By teaching the biblical view of sin, the biblical view of repentance, the biblical view of faith, the biblical view of salvation through the death and resurrection of Jesus, faithful teachers open the kingdom of heaven to all who have ears to hear. Second, Moving to the second point, we need to understand how the Bible tells us to address false teaching. Now keep in mind that I'm painting with broad biblical brushstrokes here. What we do in a specific situation will depend in part on the nature and severity of the false teaching, the overall character of the false teacher, and the type of relationship that we have with the false teacher. So keep that in mind. But there are many New Testament passages that instruct us how to address false teachers. Let this panorama of instruction sink in. Paul, to the church in Rome, in Romans 16, verses 17 and 18, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Paul, to the church in Colossae, Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Paul, to the church in Thessalonica in 2 Thessalonians 2-3, this church was faced with erroneous teaching about the future day of the Lord, and Paul said, let no one deceive you in any way. Paul to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1 verses 3 and 4, charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Paul, on the responsibility of an elder in Titus chapter 1 verse 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Paul to Titus in Titus chapter 1 verses 10 to 13, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. I borrowed those four words, they must be silenced, for the title of this Sermon and notice that the silencing and sharp rebuking is not about being right on paper, it's about the well being of other people who are being destabilized by false and misleading words. Such people need to be re stabilized in the truth of Scripture the author of hebrews to the early christians in hebrews 13:9 said do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace john To his fellow believers in 2 John verses 9 to 11, Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Jesus to the church in Ephesus, Revelation chapter 2 verses 2 and 6, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Of course, Jesus also had some tough things to say about the church in Ephesus, but for those things, he commended them. Jesus, the church in Pergamum, in Revelation chapter 2, verses 14 to 16 I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans, Therefore repent, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. And finally, Jesus to the church in Thyatira, Revelation chapter 2, verses 20 to 23, I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will will, uh, cause to go through great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. Now, this is a weighty collection of passages. The assumption is that believers, first of all, know the truth. That they have been established in the faith just as the apostles taught it in the New Testament. We want to be like the church in Rome about which Paul said, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. And if we know and cherish sound doctrine. Then we, the church and its leaders, will be motivated and equipped to be alert and watch out for false teachers and contend for the faith and see to it that no one takes us captive or leads us astray and will test the legitimacy of those who claim the mantle of Christian leadership, and will hate the works of heretical movements, and will rebuke and silence those who oppose sound doctrine, and will avoid troublemakers who trip people up with unbiblical teachings, and will refuse to tolerate or be partners with leaders and movements that are spreading a faulty message. That's not my will. This is the Lord's will clearly revealed in the New Testament. Our job is to be aligned with it. Now, we may sometimes disagree about how to handle a specific situation, and that's fine, that's life, life is messy, but there should be no disagreement that we are in fact called to take a firm, strong, and clear-headed stand against false teachers and their errors. If, over the course of several years, we never take a firm and strong stand against anyone inside the Christian community, then the most probable explanation is that we are asleep at the wheel, or that we are unwilling to take tough stands, or that we prefer sloppy compromises and superficial alliances over steadfast conviction. In light of Scripture's repeated warnings on this subject, is it really possible that this, this congregation will never be in a position where we have to oppose false teachers. On the other hand, if over the course of several years, our default mode is to always make sure that we are taking a hard stand against somebody, if we're always chomping at the bit to have another false teacher to call out and critique, if we thrive on doctrinal controversies and can't wait to learn about additional opportunities to silence people, then the most probable explanation is that we are immature in our character and we have not yet learned to excel in patience, kindness, and grace. Even so, the Lord clearly calls his people to be vigilant in the face of diverse and destructive errors. Therefore, we must be willing and ready to represent the Lord faithfully on the doctrinal battlefield. And yet, this battlefield exposes us to many hazards... Hazards that can only be avoided if we are clothed in good character and in the armor of God. Of course, we can avoid the hazards of the battlefield if we avoid the battlefield altogether, but avoiding the battlefield altogether is simple disobedience, and simple disobedience is never a good solution to anything. Go to the battle, enter the fray, and do so with the Lord's equipment. No mere man exercised greater doctrinal vigilance than the Apostle Paul, and he said this in 2 Corinthians 6, verses four to seven. As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. We have no business dividing up what the Lord has joined together. We cannot pick and choose between genuine love and truthful speech. If we exhibit a form of love without truth, we will hurt the people we love by exposing them to heavy doses of error, which is bad for their souls. If we exhibit a form of truth-telling without patience, kindness, and genuine love, then we will impede the spread of truth by putting a bad taste in people's mouth. Of course, all of this is quite impossible to pull off without the sanctifying influence of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit must work in our heart. And without the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, it will be much better for everyone if we just stay home and stay off the battlefield. But if the Holy Spirit is empowering us to do what God commands, then we must do the work assigned us. In the Lord's strength, we can prove, prove faithful in the battle by doing, for example, what Paul told Timothy to do in 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Notice that kindness, patience, and gentleness is not deployed in the service of theological sloppiness and doctrinal carelessness. Instead, these gracious qualities are deployed as essential accompaniments to doctrinal faithfulness. The Lord's servant knows the truth, is able to clearly articulate the truth, and is willing to correct those who oppose it. In this way, healthy Christians contend for the faith without being jerks. They may be accused of being jerks, and there's no shame in the mere accusation, but they must not actually be jerks. And they must not be jellyfish either. Instead, they are Christian warriors captured by God's grace, compelled by God's truth, commissioned by the risen Lord Himself, and they are ready to preserve and proclaim sound doctrine for the nourishment and growth of God's people. The bottom line is that congregations, its leaders and members, must be vigilant against the encroachments of false teachers. Pastors and elders must take the lead, set the example, and take special responsibility for matters that pertain to the whole church, for example, things like Sunday school curriculum, worship music, the church library, and so on. At the same time, every Christian, this includes you, fellow believer, every Christian must be established in sound doctrine and must exercise Doctrinal doctrinal discernment for the benefit of your own soul and for the benefit of your household and for the benefit of all your spheres of influence. The Bible instructs all of us to be watchful and to see to it that we are not led astray. And it's tricky to not be led astray. As we seek to exercise level-headed discernment, not as a -a pick-a-fight heresy hunter... But as a humble and gracious person who loves biblical truth, we need to be aware that false teachers often operate inside the Christian community. Obviously, there are a gazillion false teachers outside the Christian community, but what is most pressing and dangerous and what the New Testament repeatedly warns about are those false teachers who operate within the Christian community. And the Apostle Paul says that they they masquerade. They disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Jesus said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves, Matthew 7, 15. So a superficial evaluation of false teachers may not reveal their falseness. They do their best to look like sheep, act like sheep, talk like sheep. They do their best to disguise themselves as righteous emissaries of Christ. And since they are masters of disguise, a high percentage of their public ministry is going to look Christian. It's going to look okay, going to look right. Therefore, we're gonna have to slow down and be careful discerners because we do not wanna make a mistaken conclusion in either direction. We don't wanna mistakenly conclude that a faithful teacher is a false teacher. And we don't want to mistakenly conclude that a false teacher is a faithful teacher. The biblical call to discernment requires us to go beyond mere appearances and to dig deep. So don't be stunted in your own doctrinal maturity and discernment powers, but grow in doctrinal maturity so that you can do your part to protect your household and your church family from destructive influencers. Now, with all that said, I'm finally ready to get to a very important point of application, which is, of course is why I'm preaching, preaching the sermon today. I'm not going to give a sermon like this, by the way, every time the elders make a tough call. But since this is the first time since I've been here that we have done something like this, which I'll tell you about in a minute, I think it's important for you to understand the mindset of the elders and the sense of responsibility that we have for the well-being of the church. Earlier this year, we made a tough call after several months of deliberation and and back-and-forth and interactions with various people, and what we did was we suspended our church's use of any songs from Bethel Music, which is connected with Bethel Church in Redding, California. All of the elders, including our elder in training, Alan, were in complete agreement in making this decision, and you can speak with any one of them about it. Previously, we have sung Bethel songs during the worship service, and at at the present time now, we will not be doing so. Why? Well, there's two reasons why, and the first reason only indirectly relates to this sermon, but I do want to touch on it briefly. The first reason is, is that there was a small but growing number of church members and church attendees who expressed concern about or objected to our use of Bethel music because of Bethel Church's serious errors. And from the elder's point of view, this by itself would have been a sufficient reason to discontinue our use of Bethel music because Romans 14.1 to 15.7 urges us to walk together in peace and to worship the Lord together in unity. If the worship of some mature and thoughtful members of our congregation is hindered or unsettled by the use of certain songs, then with literally hundreds of unobjectionable songs at our fingertips, why not simply set aside the unsettling songs for the sake of pursuing peace and unity with our brothers and sisters? There is no song, and there is no version of any song, that i have to have sung in the worship service and uh we should and the elders believe that all of us should be willing to set aside any song or any version of any song any preference that we might have for the sake of walking together in unity in worship with our brothers and sisters now this doesn't mean that we cancel any song that anyone fusses about i i would interact thoughtfully with someone if i thought that they was just scruples or minutia that they were concerned about, and I could try to persuade them to see the bigger picture and come to a better understanding. But uh, so we want to weigh the reasons that people have. But in this case, these were not scruples, but very justifiable concerns. So that, that, but that was the first reason, walking in unity with our brothers and sisters. The second reason is even weightier and solidified our decision. It became evident to us that Bethel's teaching ministry is characterized by serious and injurious failings, and we do not want to platform, promote, support, or endear you, excuse me, endear you to a ministry that has this level of doctrinal failings. And notice, this is very important, notice that I did not say that we don't want to platform, promote, support, or endear you to a ministry that has failings. I didn't say that. If that was our outlook, everyone would be suspended, including ourselves. Because every ministry has failings. So I want to be clear. I want to be very clear. We are willing to platform, promote, support, and endear you to imperfect ministries. Because that's the only kind that exists, except for the ministry of our great high priest. But the New Testament warnings... That I mentioned earlier are not designed to get us to dismiss every teacher on account of any failing. Instead, what is important to discern is whether there are patterns and trajectories and emphases in a teaching ministry that would have a serious and injurious effect on the body of Christ. And in our estimation, Bethel Church rises to that level and therefore justifies suspension. Now, in the interest of honesty and fair-mindedness, I do not mind telling you that I appreciate certain things about Bethel Church. So many people have an atheistic and materialistic view of the world, but Bethel has a supernatural worldview. They believe that there's a living God who's actively involved in the affairs of men, and so do I. Many people have a woke, progressivist view of morality, But Bethel adheres to a biblical view of marriage and sexuality, and so do I. So many people have a therapeutic view of salvation, but Bethel believes that Jesus suffered the wrath of God on the cross in the place of sinners, and so do I. So I'm not going to stand up here and pretend that Bethel is complete and total wickedness. Bethel has some good points, and we would do well to pray for Bethel Church, that their entire ministry would be recalibrated according to the Word of God so that they might bear good and lasting fruit. But the good points notwithstanding, Bethel has some bad points that are so egregious that as the pastor of South Paris Baptist Church, I don't want you under their influence. I mean if you choose to listen to their to listen to their songs on your Apple music playlist, that's your business. I'm not gonna police your I'm not gonna police your playlist. But I do want it to be publicly known that I don't want you to be under Bethel's influence and I don't want you to be endeared to their ministry. Their musical productions are excellent and very popular in the worlds of contemporary Christian music and worship music. They got a lot, of, a lot of songs high on the charts. No doubt you've heard many of them. I don't want their excellent music to endear you to their ministry. Through its music, ministry school, and global reach, Bethel is influencing millions of people. In my opinion, I'm going to give you kind of a little lay of the land here uh, on some of, some of the stuff that they teach, but uh, I want to start with just this. In my opinion, the most basic problem that Bethel has is that they are unruly and reckless when it comes to operating within the boundaries of Scripture. If I had to if I had to, distill, to distill my concern about Bethel into a single statement, I would say that they routinely violate the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture, which I preached about on April 30th. From their perspective, Scripture is not a gloriously sufficient green pasture within which to graze and grow and through which the Holy Spirit sanctifies and shapes our lives and to which our hearts and minds must tenaciously submit. For them, Scripture is a springboard to launch into new ideas and new experiences and new realms that go beyond what the Bible addresses. Their approach to Scripture is unbiblical and dangerous to people's souls. They want to experience supernatural phenomena on a regular basis. And when I say supernatural phenomena, I'm not talking about the supernatural Holy Spirit working through the supernatural Word of God to do the supernatural work of conversion and sanctification in the hearts and minds of sinners. Instead, they want to experience miracles and healings and visions and new prophetic revelations on a regular basis. And in pursuit of this unruly agenda, they handle Scripture in a sloppy way. There's so much sloppiness and silliness in a lot of their statements. I'm not even going to get into that but you can find it out there. Um, I'm going to deal more with serious-minded concerns here. So my own process was, in addition to watching or reading numerous reviews of Bethel's teachings and watching numerous sermons from their lead pastor, Bill Johnson, I also read three books that that, that, that reflect Bethel's Ministry Culture. I read When Heaven Invades Earth, A Practical Guide to a Life of Miracles by Bill Johnson. I read Experiencing the Heavenly Realm by Judy Franklin and Benny Johnson. Benny was Bill Johnson's wife prior to her death last year. Judy Franklin served as an administrative assistant to Bill Johnson for many years, and Bill Johnson wrote the foreword to their book. I also read The Physics of Heaven co-authored by Judy Franklin and Ellen Davis, with contributions from many other authors, and Chris Valatin, one of Bethel's senior associate leaders, wrote the foreword to that book. Now, let me just give you a flavor of the kinds of things that are in these books. The titles to all three books reveal an emphasis on the heavenly and the miraculous. The subtitle to Bill Johnson's book is A Practical Guide to a Life of Miracles. And it's built on the conviction that the preaching of the gospel ought to be accompanied by manifestations of power in miracles and healings. Now, I'm not an anti-charismatic, so I do not dismiss Johnson's writing simply because he encourages miracles and healings. My critique is based on the fact of the inordinate emphasis that he gives to miracles. In a Facebook post, he said, The gospel requires miracles to be fully preached. In his book, he writes, When miracles are absent, so is the glory of God. He writes, Without miracles, there can never be a full revelation of Jesus. He writes, Something happened in me that won't let me accept a gospel that isn't backed with signs and wonders. He writes, Jesus gave people the right to disbelieve at all if there was no demonstration of power upon His ministry. There, there's a measure of truth in that. But then, then he says, I hunger for the day when the church will make the same statement to the world. If we're not doing the miracles that Jesus did, you don't have to believe us. When miracles are prized and sought after and required in this fashion it effectively replaces Scripture as the preoccupation of the believer's life. It is sobering to think that in Jesus' masterful sermon on the mount in which He calls us to a heart-level righteousness in all manner of godly conduct, the only time in the whole sermon that He mentions prophesying and casting out demons and doing mighty works is in the context of False Christians who claim to have done such works in his name and yet at the final judgment Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. Bill Johnson also wrote the foreword to experiencing the heavenly realm. Speaking of the book's two authors, Judy Franklin and Benny Johnson, Bill Johnson wrote, these two authors are among the most qualified people I know for such an endeavor to write a book about experiencing God. The the book is basically a guidebook that is intended to lead you, the reader, into heavenly encounters with God, encounters in which you visit God in heaven, and as the back cover of the book says, experience love in the third heaven realm. The Apostle Paul was transported to the third heaven, and he came back speechless. The Apostle John had profound profound visions that he recounted in the book of Revelation, but according to Franklin and Johnson, such visitations to heaven are available to any believer. Benny Johnson writes, after reading John's encounters, we can see that it is God's intention to take us into his realm to uncover his glorious mysteries. I believe it would be much more accurate to say that after reading John's Encounters, we can see that it was God's intention to take John into his realm so that he could come back and record it for us through the written word. In the book, Judy Franklin describes numerous heavenly encounters in which she, among other things, stands or sits on God's lap, puts her arms around his neck, kisses his cheek, sees the Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit all dancing, Here's the Holy Spirit inviting her to dance with him, talks with God in the garden. Jesus takes her hand, and they started walking through the woods. When I consider the Holy Spirit-inspired record of Job's vision, Isaiah's vision, Daniel's visions, Ezekiel's vision, Paul's visions, and John's vision, they are worlds apart from what Judy Franklin describes. That said, if she simply told me in private that she had some really unique heavenly experiences, and if she didn't make a big deal about it but walked honorably in sound doctrine and godly living, I probably wouldn't give her a hard time about it. But she is the one who decided to make a big deal about it by telling the whole world about it through her book and it's not merely a testimonial, because the situation worsens when you consider the fact that she is writing this book in order to lead you, the reader, into these heavenly encounters. She has sought to lead Bethel's School of Ministry students into these heavenly encounters, and she offers you a template a template uh, in the book to lead you into these heavenly encounters. She claims that God has indeed created a garden for each one of us to come to in these heavenly visions. And she claims the divine authorization to lead people to the gate of heaven and into a heavenly experience. She uses a process called visualization in which the disciple pictures Jesus in his or her mind, walks up to the Jesus thus pictured, and waits for Jesus to do something. The responses are very predictable. She hears people say things like, he hugged me. He kissed me. He's dancing with me. He put his hand on my head. Like teacher, like students. One very measured and gracious, and I mean that. This reviewer was actually very measured and gracious in his critique of this book. He said this, my paraphrase. He said, the Bible gives no warrant for seeking encounters with divine persons through the process of visualization. But seeking such encounters with divine or heavenly beings through visualization has been a standard practice of the occult for many years. One of my favorite hymns begins when we walk with the Lord in the light of his word. But seeking to walk with the Lord in the light of our own vivid imaginations is not the way to be healthy and holy and happy in Jesus. Finally, we come to the book, The Physics of Heaven. Chris Ballatin, one of Bethel's senior associate leaders, wrote the foreword to the book. He calls it a powerful book that reads like a journal that emerged from a Holy Spirit think tank. He wrote, The Apostle Paul went on to say, that the saints are to bring to light the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Quoting Ephesians 3:8 and 9. Now one would hope that a simple quotation of Scripture in the forward of a book would not land the forward writer in big trouble. But there are two problems here. First, Paul did not say that the saints are to bring to light the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God. Instead, Paul described his own apostolic ministry as bringing the mystery to light. Paul said, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The apostle Paul brought the mystery to light for the, benefit of the church, for the benefit of the church so that the church might reveal God's wisdom to the universe. Now here's the second problem. This is very serious. Valentin claims that the project undertaken by the authors and contributors in the Physics of Heaven book, quote, could be the beginning of this Ephesians passage being unveiled to spiritual beings in heavenly places. Now, as I hope you'll see in just a moment, this is an insane, absurd, and wildly reckless statement. The Physics of Heaven is a book about the mysteries of sound, light, vibrations, and quantum physics, and how these physical realities interface with the metaphysical and spiritual world. Do you know what the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God, but was then brought to light by the Apostle Paul. Do you know what that mystery was? Paul clearly tells us in Ephesians 3.6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The stunning reality is that the Gentiles are included in God's family, such that believing Gentiles and believing Jews are now at peace in the same household of God. And now through the church, as they do life together and are peace with one another and walking together with the Lord, they manifest the wisdom of God and the wisdom of the cross and the glory of the peace that Christ achieved to the heavenly authorities. And yet, Chris Valatin takes Ephesians 3, 8, and 9 completely out of context and gives it a clever metaphysical spin, and then has the gall to say that now, in the 21st century, through the strange metaphysics of the Physics of Heaven book, this could be the beginning of the Ephesians passage being unveiled to the, to the spiritual beings in heavenly places. This sleight of hand, in which a scripture is quoted in defense of a thoroughly unscriptural idea, is reckless, and it catches the ignorant unaware. In chapter 1, here is how co-author Judy Franklin describes the physics of heaven. Its sole purpose is to share what we have discovered so you can go on your own journey of discovery with God into the realms of sound, light, energy, vibration, and quantum physics. Why? Because I believe what the Lord has been showing both of us is the absolute truth that will help us bring God's kingdom to this earth. The Lord is ready to use sound, light, and energy in ways we never dreamed. Seriously? The missing ingredient in us bringing God's kingdom to earth is the mysterious laws of physics? She continues, The next thing the Lord told me was that soon he would release a sound from heaven that will literally change the structure of how we think. This new sound will transform us like the transformation spoken of in Romans 12. Our minds will be renewed so that we think like him and are no longer conformed to this world, but conformed to this world, I'm sorry, but conform to the will of God. Bringing heaven to earth is our mandate, and to do that, we need to think more like heaven. Well, that's true. We do need to think more like heaven. But according to the Apostle Peter, the Lord's precious and very great promises are Provide everything that we need for godly living. We have the very word of God and the indwelling spirit who transforms and renews our lives. But according to Judy Franklin, we should be on our tiptoes waiting for a new and transformational sound from heaven. And by what authority does she make this claim? The Lord told me. The authority of what she claims to be a revelation from God, a revelation that is at odds with what God has already revealed to us in scripture. In chapter two, the other co-author, Ellen Davis, claims that we Christians have much to learn from the New Age movement. She writes, I decided to examine New Age thought and practice for anything precious that might be extracted from the worthless. At that time, I could not find a single Christian leader who shared a similar interest in finding out if there were truths hidden in the New Age. Now, we are beginning to hear more and more revelation that is in line with what New Agers have been saying all along. And we are hearing more and more teaching about Christians taking back truths from the New Age that really belong to citizens of the kingdom of God. She continues, I believe that the Holy Spirit is moving again. So do all of the Christian leaders who contributed to this book. They are all trying to position themselves to be where the puck is going to be, not where it's been. None of them want to be caught, left behind when the Spirit moves. They all agree that the next move of God will cause a shift at the deepest level of who we are, perhaps at the very vibrational level that the New Age movement has been exploring. They also all agree that there are precious truths hidden in the New Age that belong to us as Christians and need to be extracted. From the worthless. By the way, you can get all three books at Christianbook.com where there is very little theological discernment. This, this does not square with the Bible's instruction to trust God's word and not chase spiritual excuse me, not to chase spiritual insights from other sources. At the end of Deuteronomy chapter 12. The Lord said, take care that you be not ensnared to follow the nations after they have been destroyed before you and that you do not inquire about their gods saying, how did these nations serve their gods? That I also may do the same. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way for every abominable thing that the Lord hates they have done for their gods. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do, you shall not add to it or take from it." By the way, the point is not that the Canaanites, Egyptians, and Babylonians, who are all created in God's image, the point is not that they never discovered from time to time something that was true. And there's no reason to doubt that New Agers themselves have from time to time said something that is true. What difference does that make? When it comes to pagan religious systems, their overall system, considered in its entirety, is abominable, idolatrous, and false. Furthermore, everything that we need for godly living and God-pleasing worship is to be found in God's Word. And the question is always, do we trust the Lord? That He has given us all that we need in His Word? If we do, then we will not be seeking to harness sound, light, energy, and good vibrations as the newfound power to experience God and bring heaven to earth. The message of the cross will do. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. First 1 Corinthians 1.18 And precisely because the message of Christ crucified is the power of God unto salvation, we have nothing to be proud about. We must always stay near the cross. We must stay humble and unimpressed with ourselves. We must boast in what the Lord has accomplished, and we must not get cocky in our effort to discern and silence error. But we are willing to discern and silence error because the Lord has commanded that we do so, and obeying him is what grateful and humble followers of Jesus do. Let's pray. Father, I pray that this message would be received in the measure, in the wisdom, in the grace that accords With your scriptural truth father i pray that all of us in our own spheres and contexts would be vigilant because we love the word of the lord and we consider it a privilege to walk with you in the light of what you have revealed we pray in jesus name amen